Well, this morning we come once again to our series in the Psalms. And we come to the series that we've titled Certain Truths for Uncertain Times. And hasn't that been the case as we've gone through so many different seasons of life as we've been in this particular study? And we're examining together today what might be or is our next psalm to discover. I found myself drawn once again to the fourth book of the Psalms and the first song of the fourth book, which begins a section of these inspired holy hymns. It's a song that begins with these words in the superscription that hangs above it, namely, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, from Psalm 91. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 91. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, when you hear those words that I have just spoken and know that this has been composed by Moses, you might rightly wonder a prayer of Moses, the man of God, whether or not we should be doing a study in the book of Exodus or maybe Deuteronomy. And of course, both of those would be clearly a good choice because indeed that's where we hear the words of Moses the most often. But be that as it may, here in the very beginning of what theologians consider the fourth book of the collection of psalms, we find nonetheless a psalm that is attributed to the great prophet, the great leader, the great pioneer and sage, the man of God, again, Moses. So this is a psalm of Moses, a psalm that he wrote. In fact, it is the only psalm that we have in recorded scripture that's been authored by Moses. True, we hear of songs of Moses in two other places in Scripture. I say that because we have at least three different songs of Moses throughout Holy Scripture that Moses wrote. One was sung after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 15. One is recorded in Deuteronomy 32 in the last days of Moses' life. And the other is here in Psalm 90. Those are the three times that we have the songs of Moses. Now, he doesn't need a lot of introduction, and I don't want to get into that today necessarily, but as you know, Moses was, of course, the leader of the children of Israel. He was the man who was the most fascinating man, had a fascinating life, probably the most fascinating life recorded for us in both the Old and New Testaments in that he was born in obscurity. He was raised in the lap of luxury till he was 40 years of age. He was banished and then called into ministry at the age of 80 and then lived and died historically at the age of 120 as the most humble, most godly, most important man of his time. He is and was one of the most influential, inspirational men in all of antiquity and most importantly, as our superscription tells us, he is the man of God. He is the man that God has appointed. The phrase man of God and the titles given to Moses also, just so you know, Deuteronomy 33.1. He's spoken of in the same way, Joshua 14.6, Ezra 3.2. All of this, Moses, the man of God, is a title especially appropriate for him. And I say that because he was a man approved by God, a man faithful to God. 
And indeed, other titles that are similar to that were given to other men in the book of Judges, Judges 13, Judges 13, 8, 1 Samuel 2, 1 Samuel 6, 1 Kings 12. But there's no one that had this special appropriateness to the title as did Moses. Moses on account of his character, Moses on the fact of his imminent rank in front of the people, and Moses, because of his influence in founding all that is known to be the, the nation of Israel, of course, distinguishes him as first and foremost in this designation, the man of God. So when you come to a psalm, as you have been studying with us, that bears his name, the only psalm, and the only psalm written by this mighty man of God, the only psalm attributed to Moses, then just this fact alone makes us stand up and pay attention because surely what he has to say is more important for us to understand than almost anything else. In Exodus 15, at about the age of 80, after Pharaoh's army had been drowned and the children of Israel had passed over the Red Sea unharmed, as you remember, we see that both Moses and Israel together sang. They, they sang together a song that's attributed to Moses in Exodus 15, verse 18, and they sing out because of the joy of the triumph of what had just happened. In Deuteronomy 32, the section of Scripture known as the Song of Moses, at the age of 120, we also read of the end of Deuteronomy 31, how Yahweh commissioned Moses to write this song. We see that because in verse 19 and then later in verse 29, Moses speaks of the reason that he wrote this song. Not only did God commission him to do it, but he says, for I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the later days, for you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of the assembly of Israel the words of this song, speaking of Deuteronomy 32, until they were complete. So I give you that so you kind of wrap your arms around the idea that Moses, from the beginning of his ministry all the way to the very end of his 120 years, was literally inspired by God to compose two songs for the people of God to sing for reasons that we understand because Scripture lays it out. One, he's commissioned by God. I hear is a song you're to sing, and he sings it. And later, because he realizes by the passing of his life, and because what will happen afterwards by divine revelation given to him, the people of God would stumble and therefore he sings the second song. But here in Psalm 90, we have only the superscription, the, the little title above it that tells us that Moses, the man of God, wrote the song. A psalm of psalms, a prayer of a mighty man of scripture. The following remarks come from one Professor Alexander who is eminently an appropriate man to speak on this issue. He says, The correctness of the title which ascribes the psalm to Moses is confirmed by its unique simplicity and grandeur, its appropriateness to his times and circumstances, its resemblance to the law in urging the connection between sin and death, 
Its similarity of diction to the poetical portions of the Pentateuch without the slightest trace of imitation or quotation. It's marked unlikeness to the Psalms of David and still more to those of later date. And finally, the proved impossibility of assigning to it any other age or author, end quote. In other words, when people doubt the authorship of Moses, this one theologian says, no, the style, the wording, the sentiments, all of it reflect him. We don't have the reason here stated as to why God commanded him to write this poem and this prayer. Indeed, if he did, we don't have the circumstances stated beforehand as if they were prompted by some kind of extraordinary event like the Red Sea crossing or something of that nature. All we have is this statement in the very beginning before the psalm and then the words of the psalm itself to help guide us to exactly what was the reason for him to compose this inspired text. I'm going to read it for you in a moment, but before I do, just let me let you know that in this psalm come words that will be very familiar to you very heartfelt, and in some ways very shocking because he speaks of life and death and sin and our need for prayer. So let me read it to you now, Psalm 90, uh, Psalm 90, and let me go through from verse 1 all the way to the end. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it blossoms and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it withers away and dries up. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or due to might 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and wickedness. For soon it is gone and then we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Return, O Yahweh, how long will it be? And be sorry for your slaves. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your slaves and your majesty to their sons. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. You see some very familiar thoughts in that portion of Scripture. As your eyes go through it, of course, that you realize from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
a statement that fills the heart of the believer with hope. You see also the transitory nature of life itself for men and women. You see that it speaks of life being 70, perhaps 80 years in its totality, give it or take a few. You see that it says to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom, a statement that we often say and has New Testament implications as well. And then, of course, for us to have our sons and ourselves established in the work of his might. So this psalm has for us many different different applications, different themes for us to study. But as we begin, let me just start by saying, when you hear the term 80 years, 70 years, you think about Moses, you wonder, well, if this was written at the end of his life, what does that mean? In terms of Moses' age, when he wrote this psalm, we know it must have been somewhere between 80 and 120 years, because that 40-year time period 40 years is the time period that the children of Israel, of course, wandered in the desert because of their sin, because of what happened, because of their rebelliousness towards God. And what we shall see, however, is most likely this song was written by Moses right before Deuteronomy 32 at at least 100 years old when he speaks of life only going to 80. He understood he had an extraordinary life. He understood that what was common for him was not common for all men and women, but was something that was especially granted to him longevity's sake at the end of his wanderings. It's probably written close to the very end of the time in the wilderness during the time where the Hebrew people were about to enter the promised land. The generation that had come out of Egypt that were always complaining, always pointing backwards to what it was that they left back in Egypt now are those who are passing away. And Moses himself feels as if he's at the end of his course, he's at the end of his life, and so he's been notified that he can't enter into the promised land. He knows that because of the incident with the rock and the tapping, and therefore, here he is, knowing that there's a future of the people of God, knowing that the people of God don't belong to him, but are his to guide, makes this last song to them and last sentiment to us so we can know and understand one key element in the many different elements that are in this psalm, and that is, as you could tell, the shortness of life, the frailty of human life. Albert Barnes, commentator from 100 years ago, says, it seems then not improper to regard this psalm as one of the last utterances of Moses. Think of that. When the wanderings of the Hebrew people were about to cease when an entire generation had been swept off and when his own labors were soon to close. So I hope you grasp just a little bit that this is a unique psalm. It comes to us in a very unique way. In this psalm, you have something that reveals to us the heart of a man of God because he is the author and therefore we know that this is coming from his own soul. Something that shows us something of a shepherd that feels about his flock the way he does and so he cares for them with the words that he gives us. Something that explores the way of a man who came as close to God as any man has ever come close to God and remained alive to the everlasting creator as he calls him is now going to go before his people, the people of God, and before the Lord himself to to meditate and to pray on some pretty incredible truths that we're going to examine in the next few weeks. And I say this because here in Psalm 90, if you're taking 
notes today, just know we have what I think are five undeniable truths. Five undeniable truths that consume Moses at the end of his life. Five undeniable truths that fill his heart and prayer with meditations and reflections and really act as a model for us to look for our prayers as well. And I'm going to list them for you as I always do. And then if you don't catch them, no worries. I'm going to repeat them many times. But just so you know, these meditations, these undeniable truths are, number one, the eternality of God is evident. It's evident to him in so many different ways. The brevity of man is certain. That is something that no one needs to explore for very long. The severity of sin is obvious because he sees it in his people and he sees it in his own soul. The fragility of life is eventual. And again, something that we all have witnessed And then at the end, the necessity of prayer is vital. So the eternality of God is evident. The brevity of man is certain. The severity of sin is obvious. The fragility of life is eventual. And the necessity of prayer is vital. And what I hope is going to happen in our time together as we go through this psalm, and I'm so excited to continue to go through this, I hope the fruit of our time together is something that how we can see through Moses' eyes, what life is to be like, how our thoughts about God and sin and ourselves should culminate in prayer and prayer towards God because of the force and the weight of what it is that we know about eternity and ourselves. And again, as we've gone through the psalm, I could kind of delineate for you all the different aspects of what's in this psalm to help you because really what we have is in my estimation, is a masterpiece. This is a masterpiece of truth that weaves itself in and out of separate themes that consume Moses' heart. And by the time you become 100 years old or more, in fact, we just had uh, Wilma, one of our uh, members of our church, uh, die the other day. I think she was 106. I think she was 106 years old. Uh, um, not counting on it, but that would be uh, quite the deal to happen. I'll, more on that in a second. I've got some information, I'll tell you. Um, it's quite the thing to think of the wisdom that comes at that point in life and what it is that they might know. So Moses' heart and what's in Moses' heart as he approaches his 100th, perhaps even at the 120th year, should consume our hearts as well. And though today's message is going to act only as the first part of our study in this great prayer, I hope that this psalm is going to be a great source of joy and hope and encouragement as we travel down the road of these meditations together, because that's what they are. Meditations, ultimately, that culminate with prayer. Meditations about this undeniable truth and the truths that we see. And though I'm going to impact every single one of these in a very uh, distinct way in the weeks to come, I want to draw your attention just today, first to verse 12. Verse 12, first and foremost, because it's there that we find this, really the first request, the, the first petition in this prayer to consider, even though the subtitle says a prayer of Moses, the man of God. The truth is we don't get into what we classically would understand a prayer to be, which is supplications, requests, until verse 12. And though today's message is just going to be the first part of our study of this prayer, And I'm going to get into that in much more depth in the days to come. I hope that this psalm, again, encourages you as we look at this first petition. So if you notice, for the majority of the psalm, again, Moses doesn't request, think about this, anything from God. 
This is his prayer, and yet his prayer doesn't include pleadings, petitions, supplications. We don't see that until later on into the psalm. We're going to see here that the majority of the song, Moses, listen, doesn't request anything from God. He doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't want or do what we most often do in our prayers. Our prayers are bow your head and plead your case. That's what we do. That's what we've been brought up to do. And that's how we pray. And more often than not, our prayers are loaded with a lot of supplications and a lot of petitions that sound an awful lot like, hey, God, I need this. Uh, Or I I want that. Or this doesn't seem right. Can you help me with that guy or that gal? And that's our please. There's a country song on, and I don't know how I know about it. I have no idea. Just I hear things. People tell me. And the title of the song is, I only talk to God when I need a favor. That's the title of the song. And he's sincere. This is a a strong all-American cowboy who doesn't have the girl he wants. And he says, I'm going to talk to you now, God, because I only talk to God when I need a favor. Sad, but true. Many times people find themselves not doing what you see Moses here doing, which is, as we are going to find out, extolling God and looking over the consequences of his own life. Instead, you see people pleading. And so starting in verse 12, waiting all the way to verse 12, we get from verses 13 and 17, he starts to pray about asking on behalf of God's people, what do they really need? Did you notice that? Maybe you didn't until I mentioned it. But for the first 11 verses, more than half of this prayer, we see Moses doesn't ask for anything. Moses doesn't come to God to plead or bug him or, or, or request anything or invite God to do anything. Instead, he just begins the prayer by reciting back to God, which I pray is going to be our pattern of prayer from this time forward, by reciting back to God those things that are true. He recites back to God those things that he knows that are undeniable, that are unquestionable, undeniable truths that preface everything he's going to say and every request he's going to make. And that's going to take up a significant portion of our time in this wonderful psalm, just unpacking all of those different aspects of undeniable truth, undeniable truth, undeniable truth that he gives us. But for today, again, I just want to briefly review this one thought kind of a way to whet our appetite for this inspired prayer. I want to look at just one idea buried underneath this massive number of truths that we'll begin to uncover next time. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. So teach us to number our days so that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. A great portion of our time will be spent investigating this first word in English here, so, because it's going to set the the case for us. It's going to give us the context that we'll uncover again in the weeks to come because it sets the way that we should understand the words as you understand that we've been going through hermeneutically that the context determines everything. But without going into the details this morning, just let me assure you that Moses here has reached the conclusion by adding up all of the 
prior truths that come before this truth in this psalm that's a prayer, namely his consideration of the eternality of God and his consideration of the brevity of man's life coupled with the knowledge of the severity of his own sin and the people's sin drives Moses to this argument. So, because of everything that I've taught, and we will cover that in the weeks to follow, but so, because this is true, because God is eternal, because mankind is transient, because we are brief, because sin is severe, because there's no escaping the demands of the holy God, because man is temporal and dependent, the most essential way to the purposes and plans of this creator is by prayer. And because sin has creeped into our lives, all of us who are sons of men, it doesn't help us to live unless we determine from the outset to, at the outset to be numbering our days for the purpose of presenting our lives to God in wisdom. So there's so much to look at, but I, I want to try. Charles Spurgeon once preached a sermon titled 40. The sermon titled 40 was representative of the 40 years that the Israelites were in the desert wandering when they were roaming around because of the rebelliousness. And he writes this, and he makes reference to this psalm in his sermon 40. He says, The habit of numbering our days is a very admirable one. To do it rightly, a man needs to be taught of God. And if we have not been so taught, it is well to offer the prayer, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. He goes on, some men number their cattle, number their acres, number their pounds, but do not number their days. Or if they do, they fail to draw the inference from them, which both reason and grace suggest that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. It is not wisdom, he goes on to say, to try to seem younger than you are, though I have known many attempt it. That's funny. <laughs> I have marked between senses and senses at the ages of certain persons that have hardly increased 10 years as I thought they would have done by the lapse of time. I think he's talking about makeup. The age of many who we admire is mystery inscrutable. What there can be to be ashamed of in advancing years, I am at a loss to know, for old age commands reverence and not ridicule. Amen and amen. Therefore, sorrow because another year of trial is over, another year of labor ended, another milestone on the road to heaven left behind. Instead of regretting we are so far on the voyage to fair heaven, we may rather rejoice and make our years at least as many as we can. You could kind of sense in his beautiful sarcastic tone as he writes that he is exploring how the average man and woman among us thinks about the passing of time. How do we think about numbering our days? We number our days in birthdays remembered and birthdays forgotten. We think of our number of days planning out the, the wins and the wares that allow us to accomplish certain tasks and be on schedule, remembering our days in terms of physical looks more than spiritual condition. But what Moses here is concerned with in this prayer, really the first petition of the prayer, as I have said, 
To those who claim God to be their God and understand that all men die regardless of their health, wealth, and prosperity, it should be that we should take some time to do some sanctified subtraction, to do some holy homework, to do some mathematics of mortality. See what I'm doing there? Yeah. To say it simply, it's time for us to remember that all the born again will die. All the born again will die. One day, save the rapture, all the born again will die. That you are only left with so many months, so many moments, so many minutes, so many micro measurements of time that you ought to plan out the time you have left and use that time to present to God a heart of wisdom. Now notice he tells us to number our days. Do you see that? Very interesting, verse 11, excuse me, verse 12, to teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. He doesn't count over our years. He doesn't tell us to count our months. He doesn't tell us to count the decades. But the days, the days, Now, we're going to look at this in more depth in the weeks to come, but just a moment to let me say that according to those who study things like this, we are told that we don't remember days, we remember moments. We remember moments. In an article, memory is far from being exclusively intellectual function. A person's memories are not the same as a computer's. It's not data that's stored, but experiences. This means that we remember visual images, words, but also smells, tastes, sensations. We could say that memory in a human being is basically effective function. The information experiences that remembered most never correspond to objective data. Human memory is creative, and as a result, it suppresses or adds elements to those memories depending on the feelings that are involved. That's why some people remember things that never happened. Some people remember victories that they never won. But the issue before us is we usually just remember moments. We remember moments. And since this is the situation, it's interesting to me that Moses tells us that the first petition of this prayer for God to teach us, to teach us, instruct us, O God, verse 1, the everlasting God, Be kind enough to humble yourself, dear Lord, and teach me what perhaps is not mine to know otherwise. How to number my days. How to number my days. There's a website called deathclock.com. And if you dare to go to deathclock.com, You will find that on that website, if you put in all your pertinent information and lie about your health, then it will tell you the day you're going to die. So I did it. (laughs) Pretty reliable, I think. Deathclock.com. November 10th, 2053. November 10th, 2053. According, when I did this, it says I have uh, 946,469,528 seconds left 
which now means 27, 26, 25. But that's not what Moses is saying. Moses is now saying, go to deathclock.com and figure out what those days are that you have left. At least not really, because the second part of verse 12 says that the goal of that end, the goal of remembering our days that we have left, is not for some kind of morbid introspection that enables us to kind of plan the next vacation or, or to scout out the next sinful season of life. That's not why he asked us. Instead, he says to consider, to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. To present to God a heart of wisdom. To understand with the days that we have left, what is the insight and how we can honor Him with how we live. You know, in my office, if you've ever come by and seen it, if you haven't, that means you're probably not in trouble, which is good. Uh, No, I'm just playing. I'd love to have you come. But in my office, I have a sand dial that I bought when I was going through the book of Ecclesiastes many years ago. And I saw this sand dial, and I thought, "I I just want that. And so you just turn it over, and of course, all the sand starts to fall in a very small little section into the bottom of the sand dial. And it's just to remind me. It's just to remind me of the passing days, the passing moments. Solomon is so clear about that in Ecclesiastes that I wanted a visual reminder. If you think that's odd, maybe you would find comfort in the fact of knowing that Al Mohler, if you would ever go to his desk, you might see a, a skull, a human skull, sitting on his desk. I've been told it's a facsimile, we're hoping. <laughs> Never found that one friend of his. But uh, <laughs> now we know. But uh, in that desk, on that place, he has a skull to remind him that he's going to die, as we all are going to die which has changed the way I've looked at skulls ever since then. (laughs) Never anymore do I look at it as some kind of eerie Halloween kind of gimmick, but that's our end. Jonathan Edwards in his resolutions, often quoted, speaks of the same thing in terms of just understanding God and His grace and understanding in his resolutions. Over and over that he wrote when he was 18 years old that if I can ever, ever do anything, let it be that I live in such a way that I'm resolved to look at the future and to number my days, to know what is the end of my days and to live, he says, as if I was a Christian like none other in any other time period, that that I would have the the luster, the, the shine of a Christian in my day. That's from looking at his life. So you might be older and you might hear the words of Moses teach us to number our days so that we present to you a heart of wisdom. And you might say, if you're older, that's too late. And you might say, if you're in midlife, hearing that same sentiment here this morning as you're checking your phone and retrieving text messages, I don't have time. And you might be the beginning of your marriage or the beginning of a new job, and you might say, I got too much going on. Not now. I I can't. But Moses, the man of God, says here in his last days, his final 
prayer as recorded in Holy Scripture that you must be, for all God's people, preparing and examining your life so that you can submit to God a heart of wisdom. And when he examines this, as we're going to find in the context and the weeks to follow, you're going to see more clearly that the reason this is Moses' first petition in the only psalm that we have recorded as a prayer, the reason that his heart's desire for us is to record these days in our minds the moments that so often flee from us is because when you understand the futility and fragility of your life and the severity of your sin in light of all of this that we will study, then your next moment, the next moment must be filled with wisdom, must be filled with the knowledge of how it is that you can live before you meet your end and what it is that you can pray for and how it is that you should live. You're going to die. You're going to die and we smile and we nod our heads as if it's just a joke that applies to other people. But when we realize that this is not a joke, that it's serious and that it's eternal, the application becomes very special for us.